Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Disruptive Engineers, we'll be hosting conversations with industry leaders who are working on cutting edge technologies in quantum computing, cybersecurity, green technology, AI, and more. I'm your host, Samantha Wallravens. Today, I'm sitting down with Liz Maida, the co-founder and CEO of Uplevel Security to discuss her experience as an entrepreneur and the importance of cybersecurity in today's world. So you started out at Akamai and I would love to hear a little bit about your background. You know, what did you do at Akamai and why did you decide to move from Akamai and start your own company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so interestingly enough, I, I actually, my undergraduate education was in civil engineering, so not computer science, but by the time I graduated, I already knew that I didn't want to do anything in terms of civil engineering and architecture. I did a year of consulting and decided that what I really wanted to be involved in was commercializing new technology and specifically uh, related to software development and the internet. This was back in 2000, 2001. So there was, there was a lot going on at that time. I came across Akamai and was really interested and excited about the company because it was almost this perfect blend between research and the application of these very theoretical algorithms uh, of how you actually route traffic across the internet with a real life application and use case for customers in terms of allowing them to serve a global audience without having to scale their internet infrastructure. Uh, so I started at Akamai, was really very fortunate in terms of joining in the early days of the company. So I had an opportunity to work in everything from designing custom architectures and applications for customers to new product development and uh, engineering, actually building those products, uh, but really started getting involved in a lot of the early security efforts, actually because we had to build the SSL infrastructure for a financial services company where we were essentially offloading all of the work of managing their SSL certificates and establishing the secure connections with, with end users on their behalf. You talked about growing up in the Midwest and how you were a big reader. Your family you know, would stop to pick up books on, on vacations. Tell me about that and how, why did you go from that you know, reading and humanities to majoring in engineering and pursuing a career in technology? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting because I would say my, my family was not a very much like science and math oriented family. It was very much more on the liberal arts, humanities. Both of my parents were very focused on government and history. Uh, that's what their studies had been in. My father was a lawyer. But during school, I had really enjoyed math in particular and had a teacher who was very active in really promoting advanced mathematics among her students. So I, I would say more than anything, it was kind of that encouragement and mentorship that led me more down the path of engineering. When I went to Princeton, I actually was not in the School of Engineering initially. I was joining uh, Princeton as part of the Liberal Arts College and then transferred into engineering after my freshman year, because I was really interested, and I think I always have been, is actually the combination of science and engineering with the liberal arts. So for example, like one of the reasons why cybersecurity has always been really interesting to me as a field is that it really requires, you know, in, in my belief, uh, an understanding of really the technical fundamentals of the internet architecture and of how software works. But if you can couple that technical knowledge with an awareness of the geopolitical realities so that you can start 
using that knowledge to inform how you interpret the technical signals, it's, it's really the combination of both domains that are necessary to be effective in that world. So I was, you know, learning a little bit about up-level security and what you're doing with graph theory. Tell us about how is this technology disruptive or innovative? What's, what's new or different about what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really big things is how you think about uncovering potential patterns within data. And traditionally, and even today, a lot of it is left up to the end users or the, the subject matter experts, right? Whereas you've taken all of this data, you've loaded it into a database or a data lake or some sort of data storage, and then it's up to the end user to figure out what queries to write to actually uncover something from the data. And there's all sorts of challenges with that. I mean, everything from just building a data ingestion pipeline to actually cleaning and normalizing the data to ultimately figuring out what questions you want to be asking of the data. One of the things that you know, we really saw, especially with cybersecurity data, is that the relationships between all of these data elements are so critical because you're really looking for these larger attack patterns, not necessarily just very specific values within the data. And so if you could start modeling that data as a graph, so you could model those relationships, all of a sudden you could start leveraging graph algorithms to essentially serve as what is traditionally the handwritten queries that somebody would be executing against the data. And so in this case, it was applying graph theory and everything from the data model and the algorithms to this specific domain allowed us to automate and really develop more sophisticated insights into the data where the end users no longer have to actually come up with the queries and write the queries themselves. So you're talking about graph theory as it's applied to cybersecurity and cyber threats. So when we talk about this world of cybersecurity, there are many components involved and there are many different types of cyber threats that companies and we as end users face. And interestingly, over the past year, these cyber threats have increased dramatically during COVID because our world has all moved online. Schooling has moved online, work has moved online. Give us a brief primer, not that there is such a thing as a brief primer on cybersecurity, but a brief primer on the types of cyber threats out there today. And which ones do you believe are the most insidious? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think at first people think of cybersecurity and the potential cyber attacks as like this very technically sophisticated domain, but there's really a whole continuum of attacks. And at one end, you have the social engineering attacks, which are almost more playing upon behavioral psychology, all the way through to ones that are incredibly technically sophisticated and actually taking a deep understanding of the underlying network and application structure and identifying technical gaps that they can exploit. Some of, I would say, the most insidious attacks are actually the ones that are more on the social engineering side of things, because this is the case where you're really, you're relying on a change in human behavior to prevent those attacks. And quite honestly, if you develop a sophisticated enough social engineering attack, it's very hard to differentiate between something that's a malicious attack and an actual inquiry. So just as an example, you know, years ago, you might've gotten phishing emails where everything was misspelled or all in caps and lots of exclamation points. And then it's like, you know, click this random link. So it's pretty easy for a person to, you know, 
have their suspicions raised that perhaps this is not actually a legitimate email. It's very different when you're receiving an email that is you know, supposedly from your colleague that is in reference to a report that you would ask them to send to you where there's a file attached that seems to contain the content that you're looking for. I mean, if, if people were to actually consider every interaction as being a potential risk, it would actually be a huge detriment to productivity. And so figuring out a way to balance what's the appropriate level of risk and security that you wanna build in while also encouraging just general human communication, I think is a really challenging problem that cannot be entirely solved just purely based on technology. There are also the far more sophisticated attacks and the ones that take advantage of elements within the supply chain or elements within software that's actually used by a multitude of companies. And I think from a technical perspective, those are probably the ones that concern me the most because that's a case where you just have to be successful once and all of a sudden you've infiltrated a whole number of companies. So the cost benefit of analysis of being able to actually perform that type of an attack is, is very attractive to attackers. The number one piece of advice in terms of those emails is always just check what the actual sender's email address is, because even if they do a really good job at copying the email itself, uh, and they may have you know, had an alias for the sender's name, if you check the sender email, that's, uh, that is currently a clue, but even more sophisticated attackers can, can also mask that as well. So one of the biggest and probably most well-known cyber attacks in recent history was the Equifax breach. 2017, nearly 150 million consumers had their data exposed, and we're talking about social security numbers, birth dates, credit card information. Can you explain how this attack occurred and how would your technology at level help mitigate or prevent this kind of attack in the future? Well, so, I mean, I think in, in a lot of cases of these attacks, the reality is it's actually very challenging to necessarily prevent them. It starts becoming far more of a question of, can you put some reasonable gating factors into at least raise the cost of creating a successful attack, but then at least make sure you're in a position where you can quickly identify that you've been breached and respond to it. So in a lot of these cases, what happens is somebody will get in, you know, through a, a low value target, let's say, you know, maybe somebody who doesn't actually have access to a lot of the valuable data assets, but then the attacker, they'll infiltrate the network, they'll sit on the network for up to, you know, one to two years. If they go undetected, they can then start spreading to other computers and finally gain access to somebody who's might have admin rights and might actually have access to information, like in the Equifax case of all of this, you know, personally identifiable information. And so what we really focused on was when you have an attack, how do you quickly start pulling together the different pieces so that it's not one or two years before you realize there's actually an issue, but it's much more on the order of days to a week, because the sooner you can figure out that there is an issue and then start cutting off access and monitoring the activity, that's how you can really limit the damage. So a, a lot of times people will talk about the most successful security strategy is really this idea of defense in depth and thinking about things about 
you know, prevention and having a set of preventative technologies in place, but assume that somebody will get by them uh, and then really focus on detection. So, okay, somebody has tried to get by them. Can we identify what the bad activity is? And then ultimately response. If you have in fact been breached, how do you go about cleaning up the you know, activity that's already incurred or, or the issues that have been introduced into your environment? So app level with this graph theory or graph technology, you'll be able to see where the threats are coming in and therefore respond more rapidly. Exactly. And like, what is the current state of what assets have already been compromised and need to be addressed? Because, you know, one of the biggest challenges that security teams face is that over the years, they've built up a lot of this security infrastructure that's intended to do the prevention and detection. But the challenge is, is that what ends up happening is it starts generating all of this data and the security operations team actually has to sort through all of that data and figure out, oh, this is actually indicative of a real attack or no, this is a false positive, right? And piece together the information to try and understand were we actually breached? And if so, what was the scope of the breach? And that's oftentimes where things start taking an extremely long amount of time because every single piece of data that they're getting from these different devices is essentially investigated independently. And so our big focus is how do you take that information and automatically correlate it so that you can immediately flag situations that, that do require further investigation because there has been a true attack and a true breach that needs to be addressed. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your technology at app level connects machine intelligence and human intelligence. So can you explain how this works? I'm very interested in this concept of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and how humans are involved in it. And then my second part of the question is, will humans always be part of machine learning or will eventually machines be able to do everything on their own? So I think there's kind of two motivating factors for this human-machine combination, at least for, for right now. One of them is very much from a technical perspective. I mean, it essentially allows you to establish a feedback loop whereby the machine algorithms can continuously improve. So as an example, one of the things that we do is that if we correlate a number of different data points and then automatically assign it to a prioritization based upon our risk assessment, we allow the security analyst to actually have some level of visibility into the reasoning behind that prioritization and why the data has been correlated and have the opportunity to accept it or reject different aspects of it or adjust things. Um, and that's incredibly valuable because that's essentially direct feedback then into our algorithms that can be used in the future. So that human-machine feedback loop can be very valuable from a technical perspective. I think there's also right now kind of an operational and human element to it as well, is that people in general are, are by and large like not at the point where they're ready to just blindly trust a black box where all of a sudden, you know, the software is doing all this analysis and just spits out a result. It's almost like the machine algorithms need to, to earn the trust of the manual operators before they will actually just take what they're saying and agree with it. Uh, and I think you see a lot of that as well as with the AI you know, visibility and observability initiatives that have occurred and you know, very much the consideration of like what level of bias are we accidentally and inadvertently introducing into the underlying algorithms. Um, so that level of visibility, I think, is still really critical. People, people are not comfortable just you know, trusting the software to, to make a decision. So humans will not fall out of this loop anytime soon, at least in the 
cybersecurity world. Exactly. And I do think, I mean, I think there are some areas, right, where you'll see people become far more comfortable relying on machines and software to make decisions for them, as long as they still maintain the ability to, to essentially override those, even if they never do, just the fact that that functionality is there. Um, but I think there's other domains where there's gonna be just a desire for a greater amount of human interaction, um, at least for a while. Like just, just as an example, right? Uh, I have a Nest thermometer. And that's the sort of thing where it's like, hey, you know what? If it starts automatically adjusting the temperature, I'm probably okay with that, right? Especially if it's learned my patterns and if I still have the ability to override what it says. That's very different than saying, okay, I want all of the transportation in my city to be automatically, you know, managed by a machine where I have no visibility into how they're thinking about this. And there's this additional complexity where it also has to think about human psychology and, and are, are machines actually at that point where they can process data in such a sophisticated manner. I have a question about you as an entrepreneur. You worked for Akamai and then you decided to start your own business. Why did you just start your own company rather than do what you're doing, develop your technology within the walls of Akamai? Yeah, I, I mean, so I think one aspect of it was definitely, you know, Akamai was focused on certain aspects of security and definitely what we were doing was a bit of a different focus in terms of the sales motion. Um, but I think no matter what, it was also ever since the first days when I started at Akamai, I really wanted to start my own company that was really grounded in a true technical development. Um, and I think some of that came from just the challenge and the desire to really be in a situation where you were taking on a lot of the risk and a lot of the reward, but also to be in a case where it's just the level of fulfillment and how meaningful the work is when you're really doing everything on your, on your own or with your team was something that really appealed to me. And I think I had a little bit of that in, in the early days of Akamai, uh, just because we were small and scrappy and everybody would do whatever it took to get anything done. Like there was a real emotional attachment to the company. And I wanted that again, and I wanted to be part of it from the very beginning. And then you built your company and then you sold it to McAfee in 2019. So why, yes. why, why that exit? Congratulations on that. But why did you decide to sell to McAfee? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think really it was like the market conditions were right at the time, you know, we had um, incoming inquiries from a number of different companies. And I think given, you know, McAfee's footprint within a lot of large organizations, it was an opportunity to really scale our technology in a very quick time that was really interesting from a business and company perspective. I think anytime you're selling your company. It's like, it's a very weird situation because on one hand, it's very much the business focus, the fiduciary responsibility, kind of the, the purely impersonal, this is the right thing for the organization and the future of the technology. But it's always a little bit hard because on the personal side, you're letting go of something that you built, no, no matter what, there's a change in terms of the company culture and what your role is. And so it's a really interesting time where you have to kind of separate your personal feelings from what's actually best for the business as a whole. Can you tell us what you, how you define disruption and what it means to be a disruptive engineer? Yeah, I think there's, there's two parts of it in my mind. Like one is 
an aspect of like really coming up with a unique differentiating technology, right? And in many ways, it's almost kind of like the classic engineering definition of disruption or innovative technology, where it's like actually creating a new technology uh, that did not exist before. The core IP, the core technical IP of the company. And I think, you know, when I was at Akamai, when I started up level, that was very much my primary focus in terms of the type of disruption that I wanted to enable. I think over time, I've also become a lot more comfortable with, with another kind of definition of disruption uh, from my perspective, which is much more about not necessarily the starting point being created in the innovative technology, but actually taking existing technology and using it in a very new way to solve a new problem, where it can be just as disruptive in terms of its overall impact, but maybe some of the contributions to computer science, let's say, might actually come later as a result of your initial disruption, which might have been far more around the business process or the productivity impact that you might have on people. That's interesting because you look at like Uber and what Uber did was, you know, disrupting the whole taxi transportation system with not necessarily a lot of new IP, although maybe they're, you know, they're, you know, using Twilio to call anonymously call customers was new and novel, but not their own technology. So it's interesting, the two forms of disruption, one is more of a business process and one is more like an invention, technical invention. Exactly, and I think in like the latter case with the business process, oftentimes it's you're successful in terms of the business process disruption, that can then also give you opportunities to introduce technical disruptions. Like, so for example, if you look like, Uber is a great example, Facebook is a great example, you get to a particular scale, all of a sudden you're dealing with technical challenges that you would not have encountered had you not been successful at solving that business problem. Uh, and so I think it's really, it's really interesting. It's like, regardless of what your starting point is, you may end up in similar places or have similar opportunities to create innovative technology, but oftentimes the sequencing and the motivation for identifying the, that innovation might have come from a different source. So you're, you're a female entrepreneur. Can you tell us about some of the challenges you faced either as a, as a woman or just as an entrepreneur in general, be it fundraising, building your team? What were some of the biggest challenges of building your own company? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the challenges were probably shared <laughs> across across all people, especially when you're first getting started. You know, one of the biggest challenges is just you're doing everything yourself and you're trying to convince people to come join you when you really don't have that much to offer them, right? Other than the opportunity to work with you. And so I think a lot of the challenges are very much a shared experience across founders. I mean, I think one of the things I've always seen in my career for me personally is I think oftentimes there, there was often an initial need to demonstrate my technical credibility that may have been unique to my being a woman. And again, this was more of just what people were used to seeing. They, they oftentimes didn't see a lot of women whose backgrounds were in engineering and computer science. And so they might default to expecting that I didn't have that background. Although usually after initial conversations, that mindset would change. Uh, but I think that's definitely kind of the assumptions about the level of technical knowledge was probably the main, the main one that I've encountered through the years. Yeah, and that's, you know, they say you cannot be what you cannot see. So having female entrepreneurs who are so successful like you are is so important in today's uh, innovation world just to inspire more 
young women to go into technical fields. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's, that's a lot of just like what I encountered. So, you know, if you haven't been exposed to a lot of women who have been working in technical fields, it's not intentional, but it doesn't even cross your mind that, oh, this person might have a technical background. And so I think really encouraging people to just figure out what they're really passionate about. And if it happens to be technical, pursuing it regardless of if you identify as male or female, but, you know, really focusing on what you're passionate about is really important. Who are some of the people who helped you along the way? Some of your either mentors or your champions or advisors? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say definitely my time at Akamai and the individuals at Akamai really influenced me both like during my time at Akamai, but then also in terms of up level. So for example, at Akamai, I think there was absolutely like the role of sponsorship internally was hugely helpful where there were senior individuals within the organization who would be in the room for discussions about, you know, hey, we have this whole high profile project who might be a good candidate to put on this project, who I know spoke up on my behalf. And because of that, I was able to gain a lot more operational experience, a lot more exposure to high-level strategic projects than I would have been able to otherwise. Post-Akamai, they very much continued in those roles. I think what was what was really interesting is the, the shift there really became much more about being really like a senior level executive and dealing with a lot of the people management problems that even when you're managing large teams within an organization, you may not experience at the same kind of level as when it's your company. And so everything from challenging situations with other executives to how you think about legal conditions uh, to IP to M&A efforts, I would say like a lot, a lot of the individuals from Akamai were very influential in terms of helping me and mentoring me through a lot of different situations. So as I was giving my next question was how did what you learn at Akamai transfer or translate to what you're doing at an up level? Yeah, so I, I would say there's, there's a few aspects of that. Like one on the actual, just like purely technical side, one of the huge benefits of working at Akamai is that like ultimately we were really seeing a significant amount of internet traffic, about you know 30% of the internet traffic on a daily basis. And so it was an amazing opportunity in terms of figuring out how do you actually build a highly scalable traffic analysis system with a huge amount of data how do you determine what data you keep versus what you throw away? How do you think about designing things at scale from day one? Um, just the technical knowledge that I think I was exposed to and, and able to absorb while I was there was, was incredibly valuable. I think the other thing though from Akamai that was really, really helpful was just the culture. Um, and I think that that ranged from everything from the amount of autonomy and responsibility and trust that was placed in every single employee, even you know, if they were 21, 22 years old, like great, guess what? Like you're responsible for this, you know, $10 million account and you have to get the job done. So really trusting people and giving them uh, responsibility at a very early age to the attitude of, you know, for example, everybody sells, right? It doesn't matter if you're in sales or engineering or product or wherever you are. You know, your responsibility, number one, is to the customer, but number two, you're always selling all the time. So think about every interaction that you're having uh, as a sale, but not in a, not in a bad way, but in a way of 
think about how you're actually communicating your ideas. And I think that's a really powerful concept because it's not just about you know, going and talking to customers and understanding their pain and then figuring out if you can solve it. But it's, you know, even if you're having a purely internal discussion on the engineering side, thinking about how do you effectively communicate your ideas and complex concepts to other people so that you can have a valuable discussion. I think that is a skill that is often overlooked or not focused on as much within engineering, but it's incredibly critical in terms of actually being successful and working as part of a team. And so you're now you're part of McAfee and these, the numbers, the cyber threats have gone way up over the past year. What's changed within your organization up level and McAfee as far as the work that you do and the types of threats that you're trying to mitigate and prevent? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things is just the scale of the data that we're dealing with and also having much more detailed information in terms of the state of the actual endpoints, so the laptops uh, and you know computer uh, desktops, to the extent that people still still have those, really having a much greater visibility into the level of activity on those than we necessarily had when we were an independent third party. Kind of that scale factor uh, has grown exponentially over the past two years. Um, I think some of the other things that, that we were really focused on was figuring out how do we best integrate our technology within the larger McAfee ecosystem while also maintaining though some element of independence because almost all customers are not just using a single security vendor, right? And a big part of our value proposition was allowing people to take data from a variety of different sources and have it automatically normalized to a common data schema. And so while it's really helpful that we have much more insight and knowledge about the McAfee specific data sources, you wanna be able to still correlate that data with all the other security providers that, that you have in-house. In so really walking that line between investing in, you know, understanding a certain subset of the data in greater detail while, while still maintaining some level of neutrality. Can you talk about as end users, and I'm talking about you know, me getting onto my Instagram account or Facebook, where are the biggest vulnerabilities today for end users like, like me? Yeah, I mean, like the, the number one is probably reusing the same password across multiple different sites, um, which is a bit different than using, right? Like oftentimes you'll see something that allows you to log in with your Google or Facebook account credentials. And that's really going to a third party that's, you know, you still have a single holder of those credentials. But, you know, it's like every single site you sign up for, it's ask for a new password. And like the reality is, nobody remembers all of these passwords. It's a total nightmare, right? Um, and there are new solutions that are coming out where it's essentially your password manager, but then you have to remember the login to your password manager, right? And it just starts you know, scaling up. Um, so really being thoughtful about not reusing passwords, especially across critical sites is really important and making those passwords strong enough and changing them on a regular basis. I think, unfortunately, this whole issue, though, again, falls into the whole human psychology bucket, right? Where it's like, it's it's a lot to manage and like nobody really wants to manage it. And it's not so important until actually you're compromised yourself and then you care about it. Uh, and so I think there are some new companies that are coming up now that are really trying to develop more consumer friendly ways to address that problem. But I think 
it's really, it's really a significant one. And I'm guilty as charged. Yeah, I, th I would say, I would say so, the majority of people are. I think uh, the, the other thing is like the, the simplicity of the passwords. It's like the percentage of people that will have their password as password. Um, or even, I mean, honestly, it's like, you know, a, a lot of people responsible for technical infrastructure do the same thing where they just leave it as the default password because who remembers any of these? Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. a, it's a real challenge. What is your advice for students they venture out into their, uh, the work world? Yeah, I think there's, there's two things. I, I would say number one is like really invest the time in terms of thinking through what you want to do. And like, it's okay if your initial job, you know, is not what you actually want to do. That's not a cause for panic, but take the opportunity to think through like, well, what do I like about it? What do I not like about it? What do I actually want to do? And it's not necessarily what you want to do forever, but like, what would you love and be happy about doing for the next three to five years? Um, and not to be scared of not knowing what it is, but instead just invest the time in trying to figure it out what you're passionate about. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is even if the current job or, you know, the first job isn't what you think you want to do long-term, especially early in your career, working really hard and doing your best even if, you know, some of the work isn't as challenging as you would like it to be, is actually really, really important because you start to build a reputation, you start to build connections as you start then figuring out what you want to do. You'd be amazed at how many people are willing to help you, especially if you've already demonstrated how strong a performer you are, even if it's not, you know, the work that you want to be doing for the rest of your life. And what about building networks? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you, you have built networks along the way from undergrad to graduate school. Any advice on how to build your net, build out your network and your sort of your posse of supporters? Yeah, I mean, I think be really authentic. You know, I think part of it is it's like if you if you figure out what you're passionate about, there's a whole network you can build where you can find other people who are doing things that you might want to do at some point or things that you know complement your current work and being proactive about reaching out to people because you're actually just really interested in talking to them is, is actually a great way to build your network. Um, I think building the network within the company that you're at, one of the things that Akamai was really good about was encouraging people to go meet others within the organization and making sure that, especially when you're talking to people that are say more experienced than you or that you don't know very well, doing your homework in advance so you've almost earned that opportunity to sit down with them um, is one of, I think, the most effective ways to start building your network. And then being also just generous with your time in the future because you honestly, like you never know where some of the conversations may end up. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. Thank you so, so much, Liz, for this conversation. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. The Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram. We're at Lehigh NASDAQ Center. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Liz, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. Tune in next week to hear my conversation with Louis Dusson, the founder, chief technology officer, and president of AI. 
We will discuss the work he is doing on autonomous vehicles and robotic vision to make next generation transportation a reality.